Before today's episode, I would just like to give this trigger warning because we get into some heavy stuff in terms of child abuse and murder and just overall not good things. So if you need to tune out, completely understandable. Just know that it does go to a dark place. Thank you. This holiday season, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg present a Don Bluth film, The Land Before Time. Long ago, when the Earth was new, five friends lost and alone. Mother, where are you? Took an incredible journey. You want to go with me? Yeah! Through a land of wonder and a land of danger. I hope he doesn't eat any of you. From the creators of an American tale comes a story of friendship. And laughter. <laughs> From Universal Pictures. Some things you see with your eyes. Others you see with your heart. A new adventure is born. The Land Before Time. Coming this Thanksgiving to a theater near you. The 80s and 90s were peak time for dinosaur-related media. Oh, yeah. But one particular project has been known to bring an entire generation to tears. Oh. This is the story of the land before time. This is Toys R Us. Uh, what's your name, little buddy? Banjo. <gasps> Ooh, a sparkly. Dragon's Lair, a fantasy adventure where you become a valiant knight on a quest to rescue the fair princess from the clutches of an evil dragon. family in the big earth shake um you want to go with me yeah oh yeah. oh yes 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 i do i do where am i this is the great hall of judgment judgment oh not to worry charlie you'll go to heaven all dogs go to heaven because unlike people dogs are naturally good and loyal and kind huh yeah, that's true cock-a-doo what a day the sun is shining brightly, cock-a-doo sunny day, down here on the farm. Tumbleina! She's a funny little squirt. Tumbleina! Tiny angel in a skirt. Tumbleina! First she's mending, then baking, pretending she's making things hum. Tumbleina! A troll in Central Park. The Pebble and the Penguin. Dancing bear. Painted wings, things I almost remember. 
Hello. Hi. And welcome back to what continues to be just the fucking saddest December in terms of childhood memories. As we here at Toys R Us Podcast continue to dive into the history of Don Bluth movies. Yes, sir. My name is Richard Hunt, and with me as always is my cousin and co-host, Brian Muth. Brian, today we continue our heart-wrenching journey with a story taking place in the land before time. In the depths of Don Bluth. The depths of Don Bluth. That's perfect. It's not bad, huh? That being said, let's dive in. Let's do it. We are short to impossible things if you follow your heart. We start our story in 1988. We're meet back up with Don Bluth, and this time he brought a whole fucking crew with him. <laughs> He's rolling deep today. Steven Spielberg. Yeah. George Lucas. Oh, fuck. Kathleen Kennedy. Oh. And Frank Marshall. Holy shit. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Star power. Star Wars power. The star power. Star Wars Yeah. Power. I mean, shit. Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall. Steven Spielberg. George fucking, fucking Lucas. Uh, it's like dinosaurs like poetry, too. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I don't know if a T-Rex could be a slam poet. He can't uh, snap his fingers. <laughs> <laughs> It's like, uh, hey, uh, Steve, are, are we sure about dinosaurs? I don't know. Um, it's not very poetic. I think the most I can get out of a dinosaur, dinosaur is maybe a haiku. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, okay. Alrighty then. So why don't you stick to Star Wars, <laughs> Beep, beep. <laughs> During a production of An American Tale, talk began the next feature with Steven Spielberg. Spielberg wanted to do a film similar to Bambi, but with dinosaurs. Wow, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. Bambi it's like, with dinosaurs. It's like Lion King was Bambi plus Hamlet. <laughs> Hamlet. Bamblet. <laughs> Bamblet. 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 <laughs> uh, George Lucas was also brought in on the project. An early working title for the film was The Land Before Time Began. I just chopped it up a little. It's cool. Yeah, yeah. Drop that unnecessary word. Yeah. Spielberg and Lucas originally wanted the film to have no dialogue, like the Rite of Spring sequence in Fantasia. Oh, that would have been cool. Yeah. But the idea was abandoned in favor of using voice actors in order to make it appealing to children. Yeah, I was going to say, you wouldn't have got the kid audience had there not been any voice acting. I'd like to see a cut of it, though, where it was just nothing. Yeah. Throughout production, The Land Before Time underwent a severe cutting and editing of footage. Spielberg and Lucas thought that some of the scenes in the movie would appear too dark and intense (laughs) for young children. What do you think? Nothing about fucking getting hands chopped off or anything. That's not too dark. But go ahead. (laughs) Go off, then. Uh, Spielberg told Bluth while looking at scenes from the film, It's too scary. We'll have kids crying in the lobby and a lot of angry parents. You don't want that. Too bad it's fucking... Happened anyway. Yes. <laughs> it is inevitable. <laughs> oh man. Um, about ten minutes of footage, comprising a total of nineteen fully animated scenes, were cut from the final film to attain a G rating instead of a PG rating. Gotta get that G rating. Yep. Ain't nothing but a G rating, baby. 
Much of the cut footage consisted of the uh, T-Rex attack sequence and sequences of the five, five young dinosaurs in grave danger and distress. Fucking sharp tooth. Sharp tooth like a motherfucker, man. That's my street name. Sharp tooth? Yeah. Nice. Um, examples can be seen in the storyboards of the chase sequence in the Briar Patch. POV shots of sharp tooth snacking jaws were deleted and shots were rearranged to shorten the sequence. This results in continu- continuity errors depicting the, uh, the T-Rex with his right eye still open after he had been blinded. Ooh. Some screens were revoiced using milder acclamations. <laughs> Screenwriter of The Land Before Time doesn't much mind that the screenplay for The Lion King deployed the phrase, The Great Circle of Life, even though he used it in Land Before Time years before. Got him. Ultimately, there are so many stories and everything is a variation or a recreation, screenwriter Stu Krieger told Sci-Fi Wire. But he's not wrong. The Land Before Time plot echoes uh, Disney's own Bambi, after all. Yeah. But his son was not so charitable upon The Lion King's release. He was like, outraged as an eight-year-old, he says with a laugh. Dad, they totally ripped you off. (laughs) This wasn't the first time he saw someone react emotionally to his work on the film, and it would prove far from the last. Land Before Time is now considered one of the greatest animated films ever made, but Don Bluth and Steven Spielberg's film wasn't always a surefire hit. There was the young brontosaurus with a dead mother, but he was not yet called Littlefoot. There was a folder pack with notes um, scrawled on napkins and scraps of papers, but it was a mess. That's always the best place to write notes on his I swear to God. Napkins and shit. You're just like, you get an idea, you're like... It's like, I can't oh. wait. You can't just wait until you find a piece of paper. That's like me when I had that right fucking... Now. When I had that... Morrissey Christmas thing I did. Yeah. <laughs> I was at work and I literally only had a nap and I'm like, oh. It's like, wait a sec. <laughs> oh, Frosty the Snowman came to life one day. There was a screenplay by Judy Friedberg and Tony Geis of American Tale fame, but the director and producer wanted something new. Cracker cut his teeth writing for the show Amazing Stories and cranking out no. scripts from the right eyeballs uh, saw his before the right eyeballs saw his unproduced script. Yeah, Amazing Stories. That's good times. That's, that's also a fucking terrifying throwback. Times. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of these are just like, wow, I yeah, completely fucking dark. forgot about that. I must have repressed this memory. <laughs> yes. Exactly it. Repressed memories. Um... That led to Spielberg and his producer pal George Lucas to ask if he would like to write uh, write a dinosaur movie for them. When someone asks you that question, you say yes. <laughs> Billy and the Clonosauruses. Especially if it's fucking George Lucas and Steven right. Spielberg. What are you going to say, no? Yeah. Like, you know? Nah, I'll pass. Like, nah, that's going to be a hard pass for me. His job was simple. Wrangle these disparate ideas from scratch and turn them into a story with characters and heart. Sometimes that meant running running back and forth between working with Spielberg and Bluth, two men used to being in charge of the project, and sometimes that meant participating in spirited, creative debates between Bluth, Spielberg, and producing legends Kathleen Kennedy, Frank Marshall, John Pomeroy, and George Lucas. That would be an interesting battle at Checkers. Really? That's a... Imagine that fucking boardroom. Yeah, that's... Which, the, the tensions must have been high. I still have to say, though, that George Lucas is the most... I need to fuck with this. Yeah. No, you don't understand. Yeah. I need to Hate make 37 it. changes. 
Fucking McClunky. 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 Oh yeah, you'll be dead. <laughs> you'll be, you'll be gravely McClunky. wounded. <laughs> Just like yeah. Okay. Completely doesn't match up at all. <laughs> you'll be no use to me. Dead. <laughs> like, what? That doesn't even make any fucking makes no sense. That's not even a threat anymore. You just you basically just admitted you love Luke. <laughs> That's what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. <laughs> God damn it. Somebody would get very heated and go, No, a dinosaur wouldn't say that. Critter laughs saying, Well, a dinosaur wouldn't say anything. <laughs> so we're all paleontologists now, huh? But without Craiger 66, who now teaches screenwriting at UC Riverside, The Land Before Time might have been a very different movie. It wouldn't have its glossary of terms like Great Circle of Life, Long Neck, Tree Star, and other iconic phrases. Its protagonists wouldn't have the names that followed them from the original film throughout the sequels, um, and it might have not balanced its bleakness with its herbivore protagonist race to the great... Um, or to the lush Great Valley. Mm-hmm. For Krieger, the balance meant staying focused on two things. The film target, the film's target audience, and the perspective of the characters on the screen. That may sound simple, but it's how you can get the likes of Spielberg, Bluth, and fellow producer George Lucas arguing over what a dinosaur would or wouldn't say in a script meeting. <laughs> to be a fly like, on that particular um, Well, I don't actually think that Littlefoot would say that. <laughs> <laughs> He'd say something like McClunky. He would say, uh, McClunky. What does that even mean, George? It's poetry. <laughs> it's like Back to the Future. Uh, you're not going to understand, but your kids, they're going to love it. <laughs> McClunky. McClunky. Oh, man. Early in a story uh, development meeting, he says that producers resisted anthropomorphizing the characters at all. Spielberg had a vision of dramatic, dialogue-free films similar to the dinosaur sequence in Fantasia. As the meetings continued, it became clear to the group that that um, that children would have trouble engaging with such a feature. Because kids are stupid. Yeah. Kids are dumb. I remember raising it as an issue really early on because I had kids. It's going to be hard to keep their attention and keep it... Uh, keep their focus for 85 to 90 minutes with no dialogue. It's true. Everyone came to that conclusion after a while. Once the team agreed on dialogue, Krager began to break down the film on how its characters would perceive the, pl- uh, perceive the plot and the world around them. By his logic, Littlefoot and his friends are dinosaurs, but they're also children, and their language had to reflect that. I was always trying to look at their perspective. If they're down below looking up, what did the trees look like from underneath? Craning their neck. Giant and terrifying. Yeah. This is how the Triceratops became three-horned, how the uh, Brontosaurus became long neck, and how the Tyrannosaurus became sharp-toothed. And it's how Krieger came up with the word tree star to refer to the large leaf little foot carries throughout the film like a totem. Mm. Leaves played such an important part to the story as a source of food, as an emblem for the famine, as a connection between Littlefoot and his mother. Krieger says, if he and the producers nailed everything in the movie, they nailed this one. Once Booth showed Krieger a drawing <laughs> he had done of Littlefoot looking up at the leaves uh, in the trees, it all clicked for him. They look like stars to me, Krieger says, and the name struck. I get that. Yeah. 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 You know, when, like, what, just speaks of like, childhood innocence when yeah. you're like, laying underneath a tree on like, yeah. a windy day, you know? Yeah. Looking at clouds, trying to, yes. trying to figure out what clouds look like yes. and shit. 
To this day, Krieger still has two frame production cells from the film given to him by Spielberg. Both of them feature Littlefoot and his tree star. Though Krieger focused on language, he also spent time establishing histories to flesh out the characters. He and Bluth, for example, gave Sarah the Triceratops a secret backstory to explain her roughness, even though it didn't make it into the final film. Hmm. She grew up in a family of all older brothers, always having to prove herself. Yeah, that'll do it. Which makes sense. Brainstorms like these would later become Easter eggs or the subject of message board lore, but they still inform the characters in meaningful ways. The team also took care to infuse their characters' names with meaning. They changed the original protagonist's name for Thunderfoot to Littlefoot. Yeah, that works a lot better. Yeah. They decided that the spelling of Sarah's name would um, reference her species. Krager changed the or changed Terry the pterodactyl's name to P. Terry. Yeah. <laughs> which is Petri, which yeah. makes sense because that's how, like, there's an episode of Pee-wee's Playhouse where Randy is fucking bullying Terry. Ooh, He's like, Pee-wee. Randy keeps calling me P. Terry instead of Terry. <laughs> Which, you're like, oh, okay. Um, Spike the Spike-tailed Stegosaurus was pretty obvious. And Ducky, he says, remained Ducky all the way through oh. since before he even joined the project. From start to finish, Gregor devel- er, credits the development as a team effort. But the central thematic arc of the film, Littlefoot's reactions to the loss of his mother, was Spielberg's enduring contribution. The idea, the idea of teaching kids how to deal with loss and how to go on from loss and find that strength was very important to him, Krieger says of, Steel, of Spielberg. When The Land Before Time was released, it was compared favorably to Bambi, which he acknowledges was a major influence and which at roughly 69 minutes has the same run time as the final cut of The Land Before Time. Oh, damn. At the same time, Spielberg's recurring mandate for Krieger was to keep the story moving. The script had to treat Littlefoot's mother's death in a way that made an impact, but wasn't so traumatizing that the kids can't get past it. Yeah. It's why her death um, is immediately followed by a lighthearted sequence where Littlefoot watches baby pterodactyls play with their mother, externally illustrating his loss. Which is like, ooh. It's why an elderly dinosaur named Ruder was added to the film late in production to give Littlefoot comfort and mention the great circle of life, immediately after his mother died. And it's also why the film ends with Littlefoot's vision of his mother in the clouds, telling him she will always be with him in his heart. Telling him Simba. Right? Which is like, oh, okay. The Lion King. All of this was a conscious effort to make sure we were balancing not making the death so light that it was glanced over, and not having it stop everything dead in the middle of the film. Which is, like, phrasing. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The effort and balance might be one of the reasons that the film's connected with audiences since it first came out. For all its darkness, The Land Before Time is now a coming-of-age classic, the subject of endless retrospective screenings, internet quizzes, ton-in-cheek fact-checks, and science-driven takedowns. It was released the same weekend as Disney's Oliver and Company, but fans have proudly pitted and other Blue Spielberg productions against Disney films ever since. Yeah. And, you know what? Possibly controversial take here. Mm-hmm. But I like Land Before Time way more than Oliver and Company. Yeah, but you also fucking hate uh, Billy Joel. Yeah, that's probably so, something huge to do with it. It's kind of like bias. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, he says, over the 30 years... I've had countless parents come up to me and say, God damn you. <laughs> you know how many days it took to calm my t- my kid down? 
prior jokes or how many times I had to cry watching the movie with my kid. <laughs> Most starkly, none of its sequels matched the original's tone or holds up in the same way. And they were all made far away from the original creators, including Crater, who was offered the job as the director video franchisee's writer early on by Universal, thanks to a clause in his original contract. He declined, saying that while he wished the new creators well, the project was pitched to him as a down and dirty cheap effort. Yeah, well, I guess they're lucky they didn't kill him all off at the end. Yeah. Yeah. Because that would have been like. The fucking like, ending to the. TV show with the dinosaurs. Oh God, man, what a bleak. Which is like you end. knew it had to happen that yeah, way, but you're like, but it's like oh, you're kind of hoping it happened it that way before, you know? Yeah, no, they went for it. Says I'd rather be the guy who creates the franchise and steps away than be the guy who cheapens it, banging them out for a few bucks. Fuck yeah, go go artistic yeah. integrity. All due respect and God bless them, but I made the right decision. Hell yeah, you did, dude. You're like, oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. Cast-wise, we have Gabriel Damon as Lowfoot, Candace Hudson as Sarah, Will Ryan as Petrie, Helen Shaver as Littlefoot's mother, Burke Burns as Sarah's father, Bill Irwin as Littlefoot's grandfather, even though he doesn't speak. Oh. He's credited. <laughs> I don't understand. He's got that contract. Yep. Pat Hingle as the narrator and Ruger, and the goddamn Mastodon in the room. Mm. Judith Barcy is Ducky. Yep, yep, yep. Yep, yep, fucking yep. Now, there's no getting around talking about this, so... Yeah, let's, let's just, just do, it. do it. Joseph Barcy was born on November 26, 1932, in a rough industrial area of Hungary during the reign of Admiral Horthy. An illegitimate child, Joseph never knew his father and suffered from social rejection and bullying by other children from his own school teachers. Um, Jeez. His first daughter, Aggie, later speculated that Joseph resented his mother for allowing his father to abandon him and consequently viewed all women as whores. Yeah, because that was her call. Right. right. How dare you? Jeez. Uh, Joseph moved to California where he worked as a plumber and met Maria Banco, a waitress in, Los in a Los Angeles bar known as a meeting place for immigrants. Mm. Maria was also a Hungarian immigrant that fled after the Soviet occupation and suffered from psychological and physical abuse from her father. Ugh. Joseph would pay for his drinks with $100 bills, which caught the attention of Maria as she sought security at that time. Joseph and Maria would later marry sometime in the 70s, and their only daughter, only daughter Judith, was born later on. Maria was an inspiring actress, but never caught a break. The only child of Joseph and Maria Barcy, Judith Eva Barcy, was born in Los Angeles, California on June 6, 1978. From the time of Judith's birth, Maria saw an entertainment career for her daughter. Maria's brother, Joseph Walden, said, Don't waste your time. The chances are 1 in 10,000 that you'll succeed. Despite her brother's advice, Maria coached her child in the posture, poise, and voice. The mother's training paid off when members of a crew shooting a commercial at a skating rink noticed five-year-old Judith's skillful skating. She was hired for her first commercial for Donald Duck's orange juice. Ever since Mom and Dad found out that Donald Duck is 100% pure orange juice, they've been acting kind of funny. I mean... I know it tastes good, but really. Honest, a giant green gorilla drank it all up. Oh, please. We don't know what to do with them anymore. Oh, well, 
Maybe it's just a phase. Donald Duck, the 100% pure orange juice for the 100% pure kid in you. I suppose that's the giant green gorilla. Oh, I remember that stuff. Yeah. We used to get that all the time. Fucking, just like, go ahead. I don't understand what Donald Duck has to do with orange juice. Yeah. Why the fuck not? Some good ass orange juice. When Judith first met with an agent at five years old, they had mistaken her for a three-year-old. Huh. She was so uh, so small. Yeah. Because of this, she often played characters younger than her actual age. On her tenth birthday, she stood three foot eight. Oh, damn. Towards the end of her life, Judith received hormone injections at UCLA to encourage her growth. Her agent was quoted in the Los Angeles Times as saying that when she was ten, she was still playing seven or eight. Judith was cute, precocious, intelligent, and a lot of fun to work with. She was always described as very professional, mature for her age, and down to earth. They signed her on immediately. She went on to appear in around 70 commercials, four for four made-for-television movies, and three big-screen movies. That's a lot. That's a hell of a lot. For, for such a short yeah. span. Uh, whenever one of Judith's television appearances was about to air, Maria and her would make popcorn just before the show came on and sit together on the couch and watch it. If Joseph was home, um, they would watch it on the television in Judith's room. Judith didn't get too excited over it, though. She was more interested in kid stuff. In a Campbell's tomato soup commercial, they had to do so many takes, Judith said that she would never eat tomato soup again. <laughs> I can understand that. Some other commercials she appeared in were Top Ramen, Jif Peanut Butter, McDonald's, Lace Chips, and several toy commercials. Judith also spoke fluent Hungarian. And when oh. she was with her mother in public, they would speak Hungarian to each other so that no one would catch on what they were talking about. Of course. For the most part, Judith's childhood seemed like any other child's, despite Judith's rising success as an actress. But her happy childhood did not last that long. Shortly before her career took off, Joseph often would be home drunk rather than working his job as a plumber, and he refused to let Maria work. As a result, the family was put on welfare for a brief period of time. Mm. By the time Judas was seven, she had earned an estimated $100,000 per year. This extra income helped the family purchase a three-bedroom house in Canoga Park in 1985. The home was located at 22100 McHale Street. After the home was purchased, Joseph was so paranoid that he had a wrought iron fence with spikes built around the property. That's fucked up. Yeah. Like, look, I get paranoia, but that's that's yeah, next level that's, shit there. Yeah. When talking with neighbors, he would keep the conversation to a minimum, and he was very secretive. However, Maria would talk to the neighbors and some of the other stage moms who would hear horrible story, stories of Joseph. <laughs> it was around this time that Judas' life began to fall apart. Joseph was a plumber, and he became easily frustrated. And when he was frustrated, he would drink. Mm. He soon was not only very dependent on alcohol, but also having a low-income job, he was becoming jealous of his seven-year-old daughter. When he would drink, he would become abusive. It started with his wife, and Joseph would beat Maria and threaten her life. <sighs> Judith, no doubt, probably witnessed this. Yeah. As her career soared, her father became an increasingly abusive recluse. Joseph became more angry, paranoid, and jealous of his daughter. He would routinely threaten to kill himself, Maria, and Judith. Um, although Maria was a full-time homemaker, Joseph complained about her housekeeping to his friends and showed them mounds of clothes and toys left throughout the house. 
Joseph's alcoholism wor- uh, worsened, causing the police to arrest him three separate times for drunk driving. Holy shit. Yeah. After the incident with the police, Joseph repeatedly, uh, reportedly stopped drinking, but continued to threaten Maria and Judith. Mm. His various threats, including cutting their throats, as well as burning down the house. Jesus. Yeah. He reportedly hid a telegram informing Maria that a relative in Hungary had died in an attempt to prevent her from leaving the United States with Judith. What the fuck? Yeah. Outside of the home, Joseph seemed to adore Judith, calling her little one. However, as the abuse worsened, it began to spill out in front of neighbors who described Joseph as often becoming inexplicably angry with the little girl. One neighbor recalls an afternoon where Maria had arrived home with a kite for Judith. As as Judith was looking at it, Joseph snatched it from her. You're going to break it, Judith cried as uh, her father roughly handled her new toy. Joseph turned to Maria and the neighbor and sneered, look at her. She's just a spoiled brat. She doesn't want to share her new toy. And then proceeded to break the kite into pieces. Of course he would. Asshole. (laughs) Maria filed a police report in 1986, accusing Joseph of threatening her over the last five years. She also said he hit and choked her. Police found no evidence of injuries on Maria, and she eventually refused to prosecute. And the abuse continued. In 1987, Judith was cast in reverse motion picture, Jaws 4, The Revenge. She had to film it on location in the Bahamas, but before she left, her father gave her a terrifying farewell. With a knife held to her neck, he warned, If you decide to not come back, I will find you and I will cut your throat. Jesus fucking Christ. When Judith and Maria stopped in New York after after filming to visit friends, Judith spoke on the phone with with Joseph and he shouted at her, Remember what I told you before you left. Terrified, Judith burst into tears and ran into a bedroom. When Maria and uh, Judith returned, the cycle of abuse continued. One night, while having a party at their house, Joseph was enraged by all the attention his daughter was getting from their guest. She had gone into the kitchen, and her her father followed her, calling her a damn little brat. He seized her ponytail and thrust her onto the floor. Judith told no one about this incident, with the exception of an elementary school friend. She also confessed to a friend that her father threw pots and pans at her, resulting in nosebleeds. Jeez. Although Joseph's anger often flared against both wife and child, he frequently apologized profusely to Judith and reassured her of his love. After pulling her hair in rage, he bought Little One a pink television set to make up for it. As the abuse went on, Judith began to experience emotional problems. She began putting on weight and exhibited disturbing behavior, which included plucking out all of her eyelashes and pulling out all of her cat's whiskers. Mm. When she when she was asked why she did this, Judith replied, because of all the problems at home. She also told a couple who were friends of the family, I'm afraid to go home. My daddy is miserable. My daddy is drunk every day, and I know he wants to kill my mother. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I know, dude. <sighs> Judith's friends recall the fear they also had of Joseph. They say that sometimes they would knock on the door to see if Judith would come out inside and play, and he would say to them, oh, that little ass, she's not here. In May 1988, Judith attended an audition for a, sing- for a singing part in an animated feature, which went on to be All Dogs Go to Heaven. Yeah. They wanted her to, because she voiced the character, but they also right. wanted her to do the singing parts. She burst into tears. Appalled by her client's distress, Hansen suggested Maria take Judith to a, sil- a child psychologist. Maria did. Hansen recalled talking to the psychologist who said, 
Ruth, it is extreme verbal, mental, and emotional problems with this child, and I have to report it to child services. Uh-oh. A spokeswoman for child services later said that the agency had um, contacted Maria, who said she had a plan of action. However, Hanson claims that Maria said they weren't doing anything, so she said, I guess I'll have to handle it myself. Maria rented an apartment. She and Judith spent their days there, but returned home to, Do- to Joseph in the evening. Hanson pressed Maria as why she did not make a complete break with Joseph, and she said she did not want to lose the family. Um, this is a nice home that Judith's career had brought the family, which is just like, man. at that point, you gotta fucking let it go. Yeah, <laughs> you know like what I mean? Seriously. Um... That same May in 1988, Sherry Barber saw Maria and Judith in the studio parking lot. Barber was puzzled by Judith's appearance. She had no eyelashes. Unbeknownst to Barber, Judith had pulled them all out. According to a National Enquirer article, Maria had rented a $700 apartment at the Regency Premier located at 8525 Tobias Avenue, 314 Panorama City, California, 91402, which is directly across the street from the Panorama Mall. One day, Joseph followed Maria. He noticed her carrying moving boxes into the apartment and asked her about it, and Maria replied that she was giving away some of her items to friends. Guess he didn't buy them. Nah. Maria suspected that he didn't believe her and sensed that things were getting worse. She even tried to make the house look like a pig star to force Joe out as he was a neat freak. But she wanted to maintain her home and her belongings. She also didn't want to lose it. Including her child's acting career, she had been waiting on a $12,000 tax refund check that she didn't want Joe to get his hands on. Sure, because he'd fucking drink it away. Absolutely. But also at the same time, in the long run, what the fuck is $12,000? Yeah. Um, Judith was last seen riding her bike on the morning of Monday, July 25th, 1988. She also had an appointment that day with Hanna-Barbera Productions for a role in an upcoming TV cartoon series, but didn't make it. <sighs> Hansel called Joseph, who had said a car had taken his wife and daughter away. Sadly, Maria never followed through with her plans to leave Joseph. On July 27th, neighbor Eunice Daly, who had heard a single shot while watering her plants, saw smoke coming from the Barcy home. She recalled thinking, he's done it. He's killed them and set a fire in the house. The neighbor called the fire department, who quickly put out the fire. The, da- the date of the murder has never been determined, but the police have said that Joseph could have killed Maria and Judith on July 25th or July 26th, although the death certificates say um, state the day that the bodies were found. It is believed that, after realizing that Maria was planning to leave him, Joseph entered Judith's bedroom and shot her in the head. He then shot Maria in the same way as she ran out of the corridor, corridor towards the daughter's room. The shot heard by the neighbor was Joseph shooting himself in the head after he doused Maria and Judah's bodies in gasoline. Judah's body was found in her canopied bed just a few feet from the paint television set that he had bought her as an apology for hurting her. On August 9th, 1988, Judith and Maria were buried um, side by side in white caskets at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Los Angeles. Um... In June 2004, a fund was set up to get headstones made for their graves. Judith's marker was placed on August 23, 2004, while one for her mother was placed January 2005. Judith, Judith's marker reads, Our Concrete Angel. Yep, yep, yep. All of Judith's toys that were not destroyed by the fire were given to the local Goodwill. The film, All Dogs Go to Heaven, in which she voices the orphan Anne-Marie, was re- released a year later um, 
1989. Roughly two months after the Barrett's deaths, the Los Angeles Times reported on September 7, 1988, that the CPS was scolded by the county advisory panel for dropping its investigation of threats of violence against Judith and Maria Barcy. Yeah, they yeah. dropped the ball huge. Yeah, the outcome of the investigation was that more funds should be allocated so that social workers are not overburdened and the case is not closed. The home should be visited and or the children interviewed. Fucked up. That is... Well, that kind of ruined the rest of my day. <laughs> I mean, I, I knew all of the particulars, but hearing it all again is just... Yeah, you're like... That is a fucking... Yeah, it's real fucked. And it's just like, god damn, man. Like, to be that type of person, you know? Yeah. I don't fucking get it. I don't either. Um, Following the success of Land Before Time, of which Judith only got to star in one of, there was a string of sequels. The Great Valley Adventure, The Great, or The Time of Great Giving, Journey Through the Mists, The Mysterious Island, The Secret of Sordis Rock, The Stone of Cold Fire, The Big Freeze, Journey to the Big Water, The Great Long Neck Migration, Invasion of the Tiny Sauruses, The Great Day of the Flyers, The Wisdom of Friends, and Journey of the Brave. Which was from 2016, so like, even up to recently. Yeah. It also had an animated series from 07 to 08, and a whole slew of educational video games. Oh, shit. Uh, they also did the fucking Pizza Hut tie-in with the hand puppets. Oh, I remember those. Yeah. You still see those all the time at the flea market. Oh, hell yeah, dude. Yeah. You know who I wish had a hand puppet? Oh, tell me. Fucking facty. Dude, I would, pay, I would pay good money for the facty puppet. Yeah. Hell yeah. I mean, it's built for it. So yeah. put your hand in the box. Yeah. What's in the fuck? <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, over 600 background paintings were made for the film. That's a lot of background paintings. That's a lot of fucking background that paintings. Is. Um, Littlefoot's original name, Thunderfoot, was changed when the filmmakers learned that there was a Triceratops in a popular children's book called Thunderfoot. Yeah. Swing and a miss. Uh, Sarah also evolved from a male character named Bambo. <laughs> <laughs> they think they made their own goal. Yeah, yeah. Uh... It had a record-setting opening weekend. Um, a sol- For a solid month, Blues gave Oliver and company a box office beating. It enjoyed the highest-grossing opening weekend that any animated film had ever seen at that time, pulling in $7.5 million to Oliver and company's $4 million. Since then, of course, that The Land Before Time was, had been dethroned, but only by The Incredibles 2. <laughs> wow, see? Look at that. Like... Took how long? 2018 yeah. is when it finally got dethroned. <laughs> like 25, 30 years. Outside of the Indiana Jones franchise, this is the only film to be co produced by both George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. Oh, yeah. The character of Spike was uh, inspired by Don Blue's pet Chow Chow, Cubby. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, we rewind our cassette and turn it back to get it. Um, ready for a brand new day tomorrow with another Don Bluth classic. 
Until next time, remember that sometimes you have to unwittingly avenge the death of your mother by killing another dinosaur. And remember, you will always be a Toys R Us kid. Hey, this is Kristen with Coffin Cast. Coffin Cast is a podcast that touches on the subject of death and other cheerful things like that. It's available anywhere you hear podcasts, Stitcher, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, anywhere. You can find it anywhere. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm here to celebrate 13 days of Don Bluth. What I like about Don Bluth movies is, unlike some of the other kid movie companies out there, they don't dumb down serious subjects for kids. They don't treat them with velvet gloves. They they talk to them on their level, but without making it stupid or using dumb humor. The Don Bluth movie that I enjoyed the most as a kid was The Land Before Time. I was obsessed with dinosaurs as a kid, specifically Triceratops as Triceratops. Whatever the plural is, that's what I liked. I had these Converse that had pink, green, and blue Triceratops all over them. And dinosaur tracks on the bottoms of the shoe. So that way when you walked, it would leave tracks. They were awesome shoes. I wish I had them today. But I went into the movie expecting to love Sarah. I expected to love that Triceratops. Sarah unfortunately, was a flaming bitch. I'm not wrong. Don't at me. She was. So, while she disappointed me, I fell in love with Ducky. I loved Ducky so much. She was so optimistic and happy and sweet and just adorable. That whole yep, yep, yep thing. Oh my god, so cute. But... I am, I'm Coffin Cast, so I did do an episode on the voice actress Judith Barzi, who did Ducky's voice. So you know she did not have a happy ending, unfortunately. So now that I've ruined your childhood, I wish you a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, a Merry Kwanzaa, a Happy Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate, I hope you have a great one.